Again, if you're, uh, when it comes to translations, I'm reading out of the, the Holman or the Christian Standard Version, whatever it's, it goes by different names, but that's a translation I'm reading out of. So it'll read a little different than, um, than yours, but it's the same. So I'll begin in verse 7 of Romans 15. Paul writes, therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing psalms to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. All the peoples should praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So remember when he says, therefore, in verse 7, he's referring to what he's been talking about, where he was talking about basically... Um, Issues that we may disagree on as believers, and he was emphasizing basically the need for us to accept each other uh, as, you know, the way that we are. <clears throat> Those differences were really over uh, what we would call minor doctrinal things. Uh, um, obviously, he's not talking about accepting others who may believe something entirely different that's not even Christian. That's not where he's going with that. But there is, again, this very strong terminology there that as believers because we are now all part of the one body of Christ and the other word that's used is that we're all part of one family uh, we must accept each other um, and, and again it's in the same way um, when you're born into a family uh, you accept those in your family it's just automatic I mean your parents usually don't even have to tell you it's just that's what happens uh, kids accept each other um, and you even see in families where maybe if there's a child that um, has some kind of disability, whether it's severe or whether it's uh, mild, um, there is an acceptance and a love there uh, for their sibling. That's just, it's, it's a, it's really is a, it's a natural thing uh, when that takes place. So the family of God then is to be the same way, but even more so. Part of that, remember, is, and we have to keep this in mind, that for some individuals, and maybe there's, maybe I guess if you think about it on, in a global way, for many individuals, when they become Christians, they lose their families because their families turn against them. Uh, I was talking to a man once, I was, I was uh, on the island of Mauritius, which is in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and I was talking to a man, he was, he, uh, was born and raised as a Muslim. Um, he married a Muslim woman. Uh, they had three children, two boys and a girl, and they were raising them as Muslims. And when he was in his early 30s, he became a Christian. Uh, her, uh, she, she, uh, his wife was very disturbed by that. She told her father, her father then uh, spoke to him, uh, basically demanding to know why he had done that why he had become a Christian, why he had left Islam. And so he tried to explain to his father-in-law uh, that 
uh, you know, who Christ was and that he was the truth. And uh, that didn't really go well. And so the father-in-law then told this man's wife that she should divorce him and not to worry about how the divorce went because he would make sure that she and the kids were taken care of. And the dad said, make sure when you divorce him that you uh, make it clear to the court that you're divorcing him because he's a Christian because I don't want my grandchildren to ever talk to him again. And so this man uh, refused to renounce Christ. His wife divorced him. When I was speaking to him, uh, they had been divorced, I think about eight years or so. Um, hadn't seen his kids in all that time. They weren't allowed to, uh, to talk to him. He wasn't allowed to talk to them. He didn't, he didn't have any contact information. He knew where they lived, but he had no contact information. Uh, he prayed for them on a regular basis. What I found amazing, uh, he wasn't bitter. He wasn't like, she did me wrong. He wasn't, he, he wasn't like that. He, didn't, he wasn't feeling bitter about her father um, and, and how he handled things. You know, he, he knows what the Bible says. The Bible says that as believers, we're going to suffer persecution. And uh, so he was very saddened by all these things, but he was uh, continuing to walk with the Lord. So he told me, and I've read this in many places when it comes to Christians who go through that type of uh, uh, rejection, betrayal, and, and persecution. He said that uh, um, for him, you know, the church, that was, his, that was his wife, that was his children, that was his father, that was his mother. You know, that he, you know, he had a family. Uh, and, um, you know, he was just real low-key, just that's how it is. Um, and he was fine with that, and he was trusting God to... Um, uh, you know, he says, I'm, I'm praying to God that my children will come to know Christ. I'm praying to God that my wife, he says, it's more important for my wife to become a Christian than for her to be my wife again. He says, I still love her. Um, and it was just amazing. And I met several people. When I was in Mauritius, um, what was interesting is I did not meet one single Christian who had not experienced persecution or rejection or betrayal from their families. Every single one of them had, to one degree or another. You know, some, uh, you know, when they became believers, they were, you know, it was, it's very common in, in a lot of these countries for kids to live with their parents uh, until you get married. And even sometimes after you marry, you know, they just add on to the house uh, kind of a thing. So, um, you know, in our country, you're viewed as kind of a loser if you're living with your parents when you're 30, which you may be. But in these other countries, it's very different. Um, but in some of these countries, uh, when that happens, uh, the parents, the family may not kick you out, but they, they don't talk to you anymore. Uh, they're not going to help you in any way. I mean, they will, you'll have a, you'll have a roof over your head. Um, if they do allow you to eat the food, you eat by yourself. You don't eat with the family. You're not a part of the family. Um, in other cases, then you'll be kicked out on the, on, out of the home, even if you live on the street. Um, you know, so all that kind of thing, just, it takes place. So this idea of acceptance, um, it's really, it's very important. And even in our country, um, you know, I've talked to people who, you know, they've not experienced persecution. Their families don't hate them. But if you're the only Christian in your family, you've got nothing in common with them. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you know, you, you, you might like the same football team, but that's not a whole lot to build a relationship on. You know, I don't, you know, someone never comes to me and says, Bob, how's your relationship with your wife? And I say, well, she's a Bear fan. 
Okay, that's that's not very. You would you would say, wow, Bob doesn't have much of a marriage. <laughs> if that's what they have in common is that, all right. So, uh, but I've talked to people to where again because their families don't know the Lord, they're not really interested, and they've not really given them any grief. They're just not interested, and so the church means a great deal to them, and so um, that's why it's so important in churches that we, um, even though it's normal for us to have, you know, there's certain people in church that we're we're, we're just closer to some people than others. That's just that's human. That's it's human nature, but it's important that we don't have a clique that we're excluding others. And number two, we always need to be on the lookout for the individual who's alone, and maybe say, you know what, we need to befriend that person because you don't you don't know their background, you don't know what's going on, um, and so we need to we need to make sure that we do that. So it's just something that we need to continually remind ourselves of. Uh, because we do, it's just it's human nature to kind of assume, even without thinking about it, that everybody's family is just like yours. This is how we think. And it's not that way. It's not that. I'll never forget, we, uh, my family, there's, there's, we don't have many reunions because people are everywhere and there's, it's a lot of people. But um, we ended up having kind of a family reunion when my parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. So my second son and his wife, you know, they were able to make it as well. And... Uh, after we had the celebration, we were at my, my brother-in-law's house and, you know, we're, there's just a ton of food and, you know, we got the whole backyard set with tables and chairs and we're all just kind of yakking and having a good time. And so then I saw uh, my son, Josh, he and his wife kind of went in the house and I could see through the big glass window, they were just kind of talking and it seemed like a serious, they weren't mad, but it seemed like a serious conversation. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I hope everything's okay. And... Uh, but what they were talking about, because he told me later, he said, she was just, she was, he, he said she was literally confused. And so she said, are you sure everyone here is part of your family? He said, yeah, why? She goes, when, 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 when my mom and dad have a family reunion, people were at each other's, each other's throats in 30 minutes. They're screaming and yelling and cussing and this. She goes, everyone here, is they, they've been laughing and smiling the whole time. And she was just like, she, would, she literally felt kind of confused. And he's, he's like, and then of course my son, he's, he's different. And he said, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. And they walked in. <laughs> so, you know. so, um, anyway, so we have to realize sometimes, you know, a lot of people don't have. What, and so if you have a good family, that's awesome. And you should rejoice in that and never be ashamed of it. But also don't be afraid to invite others into your home. Um, and, and make people feel welcome because uh, they don't have that. So we have our homes we can use as a ministry. And then also remember as a church, when we do, when we have our, um, what we call our social gatherings, um, you should never think, well, for example, it, we had an oyster roast. Don't think, ah, it's just an oyster roast. You know, that's no big deal. No, it's, it's a big deal because there are people who don't have stuff with their family. This is a time where, you know, we, we don't have a structured thing. You know, we're not singing and, you know, having a sermon and all that is just for people to kind of hang out, and people need that. Um, and we learn about them, they learn about us, and it brings people closer together. And again, there are those who just don't have maybe what we have. Um, or if you, even if you don't have all that kind of family, but you've been in the church for a long time, you just have a lot of relationships with the church, and you feel very comfortable. Well, again, others don't have that. And so, uh, you know, and we have that in varying needs. It doesn't mean that... 
Um, everybody's going to become each other's best buddies. It just doesn't, life just doesn't work that way. But we do need to make sure that no one's left out. Um, and that's, uh, I think, uh, a major part of um, what um, Paul's talking about. So that's why the example he gives when he says here, therefore, accept one another. And then he tells us, you know, if you ask, okay, well, to what degree? Just as the Messiah or just as Jesus has accepted you. So that's, that's how we do it. How has Jesus accepted us? Well, we have that song that we sing. It's a very well-known song. It's called Just As I Am. So then when, when, we, when we first got saved, what did you have to do to get Jesus to accept you? Nothing. Nothing. You didn't have to take a bath. You didn't have to clean anything up. You didn't have to start going to church first. He accepts you just the way you are. Now, that never means he's going to leave you the way you are. But, but his love for us is, is never contingent or based on you changing. It's not a performance-based love. You know, like, if you do good, like, I've even heard parents say this sometimes. I just can't believe people say stuff like this to their kids. You know, well, if you get good grades, I'll love you more. You know, I'm like, what kind of parent is that? It's just, that's just not right. You know, if you want to bribe them, then bribe them. But don't say, I'll love you more. I mean, that's a different thing. You know, when you want to give them money, give them money. All right, but uh, that's different. So the thing is, is that we just need to make sure that, um, that we recognize that, uh, how, what that acceptance is. And uh, so, that, so then we don't become fed up. You know, we all grow at different rates. Some seem to really accelerate their Christian growth. Others really struggle for many different reasons. Um, and you know what? It can be trying. Remember, the Bible tells us, if I paraphrase it, to put up with each other. You know why it phrases it that way? Because that's what we're doing sometimes. We got to some people. You know how it is. Some people can rub you the wrong way. That's just how it is. They can rub you the wrong way just by their voice. You ever heard? Of, you know, some people have voices that are just like, yeah. all right. Or, or, and there's all kinds of things uh, that can happen. Uh, but we're supposed to be understanding. And, uh, and and again, our example is Jesus. Again, and then he tells us that not only do we accept each other in the same way that Jesus accepted us. But why do we do it? When he says it's to the glory of God, that means that as, if, if, as we accept each other in this way, that then makes God look good. That's what that's talking about. All right? when, we, when we bring glory to God, we are allowing God, we're, we're allowing others to see what God is doing in us. Right? Sometimes this kind of a conversation will happen. So sometimes someone will say, you know, um, uh, it see, everyone in your church just seems to really just get along really well. Because here's what you don't say. Well, you know, a lot of us are friends, and that's just how, you know, th- things, things are, things, that, that's how things go sometimes. No, that's not how things go. Don't do that. You just basically say, well, God has changed our hearts. Because there's people we know, there's people who've been friends for a long time. And all of a sudden, they walk away from each other for all kinds of things. Right? We, we're going to disagree on stuff. We're going to argue on things. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that we're able to work through things, or we should be able to work through things, because we're Christians. And so we want to make sure that others know that the reason why we get along, the reason why we become friends, it's because of God. And God is changing our hearts. 
And God continues to change our hearts. And God gives us the ability to put up with each other. So yeah, sometimes it's still hard, but I am not living for myself. I am living for God. I'm living for His glory. And so that motivates me to find a way to continue to, to bear up with that person. Besides, you really have no idea how many people are bearing up with you. And you don't want to know that. <laughs> All right, nobody wants to know that. Don't say that you do, because you don't. It'll hurt your feelings, and he might not ever leave you home again. All right, so, you know, just don't go there. Um, but it's, it's true for all of us. Even though we all may think we're lovable and, and lovely, we're not. All right? Then he, then he explains to us, after he's told us what Christ has done in accepting us, he once again, he's now going to deal with uh, an issue that has arisen in some of the other churches, including the church in Rome. And that is, there's a division, or at least there's some tension between Gentiles and Jews. Now remember that whenever you come across the word Gentile in the Bible, it can mean one of two things. Sometimes the word Gentile just means non-Jewish. Other times, Gentiles use as, as another word for a pagan. Okay? Um, so here, as you speak about the Gentiles, um, it's, it's really kind of both. Except for those who are believers, they're no longer pagans. But they're not Jewish. And there's kind of a division between them for a lot of different reasons, or some tension. Part of that, at least in the history of the Jews, even though the Jews spent a lot of, a lot of their history being conquered by other people, uh, they, they weren't very cordial towards other people. Uh, and they looked at Gentiles, or non-Jews, oftentimes as dogs. Um, and the reason why they, they did that, it's a sinful reaction to... To truth, but they knew that they were God's chosen people, and they were the Hebrew nation was God's chosen people. Now that meant they were they were to act in a certain way, which they didn't always do. Uh, so some of them, maybe many of them, kind of got puffed up. God's chosen us; He didn't choose you. That's true, but you don't brag about that because what did you do to get Him to choose you? You didn't do anything, all right? Um, and so, and and of course, some of that was. Uh, there was a misunderstanding at times by Gentiles, because even when, if you went to Jerusalem, even if you converted to Judaism, you were allowed to go to the temple, but, but you know, there's all these different sections in the temple. You could only go so far. And there was a point when it didn't matter how strongly you believed in God, you could not go to the next part. You couldn't. It was impossible. So you may, be, you may have felt that you were maybe completely accepted by God because of how those things were structured. Of course, Christ came to to eliminate all of that. Uh, all those things were set up because all those things were serving as pictures to help people understand that when it comes to God, things have to be done a certain way and man can't overcome it. And that's why Christ came to fix all that for us because it's our sin that stands in the way. In, in the end, that's really what all of that's about. Uh, and Christ eliminated all that by his, by his uh, um, sacrifice. So the thing is, is that there's this tension between Jews and Gentiles. And so as they became believers in Christ, some of that remained. And so there were still like, you know, certain Jews probably felt like, yeah, but we were the original ones. And so we're actually closer to God. Uh, and of course, remember early on in Romans, if you were here when I went through that, um, you know, Paul kind of scolded both and used their own arguments to show that they were arrogant and they were arrogant for no reason. So the Jew may have thought, well, we were chosen by God, you weren't, so we're, we are more special than you are. 
And the Gentiles could say, yeah, but he rejected you. And we were grafted in. So, <laughs> you know, you're lucky. You're lucky that you're still around. You know, and they would just kind of go back and forth. And so Paul basically said, yeah, there's no room for that. Um, because, first of all, if you work, if you work, um, uh, if you've been grafted in, you could be cut off still. So don't start, you know, poking fun of those who have been cut off. And, of course, those who are cut off, he said, remember, you were cut off. They were grafted in. So, I mean, you know, there, you have, there's no room for anyone to brag here because God's been merciful to both. And that's what he wants them to understand here. So the idea then, when it comes to this acceptance, and then it's not just then based on people having different behavior choices, which is, you know, he dealt with the, you know, you know those who eat meat and that whole thing we've dealt with. But now we're dealing with, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a religious and maybe even an ethnicity thing. You know, there's a racial component here. And he wants them to know, there's no room for this. Uh, because God always intended to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He always intended that. And the reason why I say that, because some people, and some churches have actually even taught this, um, some people think that when Jesus came to earth and he presented himself to the Jewish nation and they rejected him, that God then said, well, I think what I'll do now is I think I will now save the Gentiles. Okay, that's not when God decided to save the Gentiles. He always intended to save them. The mission that Israel was on was to reveal who God was to the world, the Gentiles. And people could come to God through their witness and, and through them. And of course, they failed miserably at that. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is that, again, God has been merciful to both. Both are in need of God's mercy and both have received God's mercy. So again, there's no room uh, for this, period. So again, uh, for I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised. So when you come across circumcised, using arguments like this in the Bible, the circumcised is another word for the Jewish people. Uh, again, get to the days of Rome and before, uh, it was the custom of most people throughout the world to not circumcise their sons. The Jews were known as being a unique people because their sons were circumcised. Now, there have been a few other groups throughout, the, throughout history who may have done that a little bit, but, but for the Jews, it was all of them. And that's how you could identify, a, you know, go to the gym. That's how the guys knew who was Jewish because they were circumcised. So when he said that Jesus then came as a servant to the circumcised, he's basically saying that um, he became a servant to the Jews, but he did so on behalf of God's truth and to confirm the promises to the fathers. And so you go back and you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God had made promises to them uh, that you know, he make Abraham the father of many nations, and that through him the whole world will be blessed, and all those things. And so when Jesus came, he did come to be a servant to the Jews, and he did so to also confirm the promises that God made to them. That's not the only reason why he came, but he did come to do that. Then it says... Uh, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So again, what the Gentile would recognize was even though I was not a part of this group that was God's chosen people, God still, the one true God, still had mercy on me. And again, they're thinking, you know, back during those times, nobody ever thought in terms of uh, accusing God of doing wrong. 
Everyone just accepted that if God is God, God does whatever he wants. That's it. We don't have a right to even question it. Today we live in an age, which has been an age for a long time, uh, where people are, you know, we, call, we call them skeptics, and it really is a position of arrogance. People believe they have a right to question God. Now remember, there's two ways to question God. You can question God because you really want to know something, or you can question God in a way that you're accusing him of something. So the idea might be that you're accusing God of doing wrong. And so somebody say, well, if I wasn't a part of God's chosen people, I don't, even, I don't like how God operates anyway. I don't, I don't think God should have just chosen the Hebrew people and, and not chosen us. Well, uh, who are you? God, God does what he wants. You know, he's given the example of the potter and the clay. And when a potter takes a lump of clay, who decides what's made? The potter does. Whatever he makes doesn't have a say. So if you make a flower pot, it's a flower pot. If you make a bedpan, you make a bedpan. But there's never been a case where a bedpan has said, excuse me, I don't want to be a bedpan. Right? That this doesn't happen. And, but he uses that, that, that example on purpose to show that the potter has the absolute right to do as he desires. Because he's making and he's the one that's doing all these things. So that's the idea here. When it comes to this, and so that's why I use that phrase, because some people don't understand it. They say, what do you mean if God is God? So what I mean by that when I say if God is God is if God is not just an elevated human being who just has more knowledge. If God is someone who's more than just maybe somebody who can perform a few miracles. If God is actually God, which would mean that he's a unique being that knows everything is everywhere at once and has all strength. There is nothing that can defeat him. There is nothing out there that could even tie him. All right? He, 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 so, that, so when we speak of God, we're not just talking about, like, like, we're not talking about Greek gods where all those gods had their weaknesses and all of their problems. That's, those are, that's not gods. Okay, those are, you call them demigods. I mean, they're all made up, so it doesn't really matter what they are. But in the end, so if we, if we really understand that there is a, a unique being who is really God, for him to be God, then he really does, he has the right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and we don't really have a say. And we don't. And that's, that's very hard for Westerners to accept. We don't like that. You know, because we're all about, especially in America, we're all about the individual, you know, and we believe that junk on TV, that you have unlimited potential. You don't have that. I know it sounds good in the speech, but you don't have unlimited potential. It's limited. All right? When I play basketball, which I don't do anymore, I had very limited potential. No one said, you know, Bob, you work hard enough, you can be like Michael Jordan. No one ever said that to me. Okay? All right? And nobody would ever say that. All right? Because my potential is limited. Okay? No one ever said to me in school, wow, you're smart. Keep it up. You'll be the next Einstein. No one ever said that either. Okay, so we all we now we all have potential we've not yet matched, right? We all have maybe more potential than what we're what we're doing now. That's absolutely, and that's not a negative thing. That's a very positive thing, and we can tell people that you can work as hard and, and to a degree, you can kind of you know it's 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 kind of true or not true. You can be whatever you want. Well, kind of. <laughs> all right, you can be very successful. 
But you really can't be whatever you want to be. Because there's a lot of other factors that are going on. Right? There really is. I mean, if you think about it, all right, even some of these guys that are like mega rich, you read their story, the word, the humanistic word we use is, oh, man, that guy was kind of lucky. It wasn't because he was brilliant. There are other people that are just as brilliant as they were. It just so happened, you know, kind of stuff. I mean, there's a few people that are the most brilliant in the world, but usually they die as paupers because someone takes advantage of them. All right? But the idea is, is that, so, so there's limits to all these things, all right, when it comes to that. So we just have to recognize that. Um, and so then being outside of this chosen people is just a fact of life. But God, because he's great, because he's good, he extends mercy to us. Remember, mercy is God is withholding punishment you deserve. Well, you always want to keep in mind there's a difference between mercy and grace. And we, we receive grace and mercy from God. So again, mercy is you deserve to be punished for the wrong you've done, and God does not send that your way. So he's merciful. God is gracious to us. That's where God does good to us that we don't deserve. Bob? Yes. Speaking of rich, mm. the Lord being rich to us, mm -hmm. Saturday, we were talking to you earlier, but Saturday I read this verse. Mm -hmm. in, uh, it is Romans uh, 10. Uh, let, me, let me just start with 11. Okay. The scriptures say that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no dis distinction between Jew and Greek. Or Jew and, yeah, Jew and Greek. Mm hmm the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yep, absolutely. And God is, so when we speak of God's grace, a lot of times we use that other word, rich. right? Because it's, it's God's not giving us just the minimal of good to us. It's overflowing. And that's the idea that's being presented here. And what Paul is reminding all these individuals that he's writing to. And as you think about that, that kind of then puts maybe our differences in perspective. And it helps us to realize that a lot of times it can be kind of petty. You know, eh, you got a problem, eh, it's pretty small and in comparison to what God's done. It, that's not really a thing. So we need to remember that. And so Paul then is emphasizing that. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Why does he quote from the Old Testament? He quotes from the Old Testament. So, both the Jew, so that the Jews can understand that God would be reminded that God always intended to save the Gentiles, but to encourage the Gentiles so they would know that they weren't just they weren't God's plan B. All right. So it, it's for those two reasons. So he quotes uh, then uh, verse not, uh, verse nine. I'm trying to look here in my notes. Uh, where he's quoting from 2 Samuel and from Psalm 18. He says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing psalms to your name. So the idea there is that it's not just among the Jews that praises are sung to God, it's among the Gentiles as well. Uh, verse 10, again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. That's the people of God that would be the Jews. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. All peoples should praise him. And then he quotes from Isaiah, the root of Jesse will appear, speaking of Jesus, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope in him. So basically, you know, as we look forward to the return of Christ, because Jesus is Jewish, we can say that the
the Jews will rule over the Gentiles because the, the king is Jewish. But again, that's not demeaning. This is a fact of life, okay? And it's a great thing um, because it's good for all of us, you know, kind of a deal. You know, like whenever anybody gets voted in as president, they always at least say this, you know, they're going to be everyone's president, even for those who voted against them. It's not always true, but that's what they say. All right, but Jesus... He is a king, and he will be king to all, whether you're Jew or Gentile, but all who believe in him, he is their gracious king. Um, and he will, he will treat us. When we say he will treat us accordingly, that means he treats us according to what he is. See, he's good and gracious. It's, it's not that he's treating us according to what we deserve, because we don't deserve anything. Right? So he treats us according to his character. And that's really how we are to treat others, if you think about it. It's not that we're great. But we are supposed to be individuals that are filled with the love of God. Uh, we are filled with the grace of God. We feel the spirit of God. And so we are to treat people based on the goodness that God has placed in us. We don't treat them based on their goodness. They don't have any. Okay? We, we, don't, we don't want to treat people, you know, this person better because they're nicer to us. Now, again, we do have people we're closer to, like, for example, I would say that I love all children, but I do have a special love for my grandchildren. I'm not, I'm not not loving other kids, but I love them more. That's not a sin. All right? I'm not taking anything away from anybody else. Of course, with God, you know, people say, well, you know, God loves everyone the same. Well, maybe, maybe not. Like when it comes to the world, you have unbelievers and believers. God does not treat us all the same. The Bible does say that the rain does fall on the wicked and on the righteous alike. That's true. Absolutely. All right? But we know that God's love for the believer is different than God's love for the unbeliever. It's different. If you believe in God, you've got nothing to worry about. All right? Uh, and so that's, that's reality. So we want to make sure we, we, you know, we base this on reality and we understand what God is doing. We sometimes want to judge God by what we think should be fair. And again, we're not very good judges when it comes to that. Uh, God is, I guess we could say it this way, brutally fair. But just remember this, never ask God to treat you fairly. Because that means you will get everything you deserve. I don't want God to treat me fairly. I want God to treat me with mercy and grace. I do not want what I deserve. All right? I don't even want half of what I deserve. All right? I just want God's, God's grace and mercy. It's good enough for me. <laughs> all right, so uh, that's what Paul is emphasizing. So after he finishes all of that, then he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him. So he's clearly talking to believers. All right, uh, it, uh, you can say this is kind of like a title for God. God is the God of hope. Uh, so we put our hope in God. Remember that hope, again, in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's a guarantee. So our... Um, our future, our forgiveness, all these things we talk about with God, they're guaranteed because of what God has done for us. So God is my hope. Right? And again, it's not like I'm hoping one day things will happen. It will happen because of who he is. So he is my hope. And so his prayer basically is that God will fill me with all joy and peace as I believe in him and he wants God to fill us with joy and peace, uh, and he wants him to fill us with joy and peace so that we then can overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So th that then means there should be an effect on the way that we feel and on the way that we act. So if God fills me with joy and peace so that I overflow with these things, all right, I overflow uh, with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, I then will treat you better because I am uh, not fixated on the here and now only, but on God and what God gives us. Right? So it's, it's the paradigm, it's the lens through which we look through uh, when it comes to how we decide how we're going to live our lives. And this is what he, he, wants these, he wants these Christians to do. In other words, he wants them to act like Christians. And all these things he's been correcting, he's correcting because they're not acting like Christians. But he wants them to do so. He wants them to change their behavior and their attitudes based on the truth that he's given to them. All right? Because these things are true, because God is doing these things for all of us, then we have this ability. We have the God of hope. He is, he is going to fill my heart with hope and peace. So because he does that, I actually have the capacity to do this. I, no, no one can ever say, well, you know, I was, uh, uh, I was raised to be prejudiced against certain people. And, you know, you, I, I, I can't change. Oh, that's, that's untrue. It just doesn't happen that way. God change your heart. He will. Period. I mean, this is all there is to it. The Bible tells us in Romans, we've already said he pours his love in our hearts. So he doesn't say, oh, I hope you can generate love for people who are black or people who are Asian. He doesn't say that to us. What does he say? Love all people, period. I pour my love in your heart. You can do it. Absolutely. And we can. Absolutely we can. And we, and we actually, we must. Um, remember that when it comes to the kind of love that God's talking about there, uh, love is a choice. It's, you decide you will love. And sometimes when you talk like that to people, they, they think, that's not, that's not love. Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. We do it all the time. I give, in fact, uh, I give you an example. All right, so, man and woman get married. She gets pregnant. The child's not yet been born. They have no idea what the kid's going to look like. They have no idea what the kid's going to do. Do they love that kid? Wait, how do they love that kid? They, 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 now, they may not feel like it's a choice because it's natural, but they've chosen to do that because there are some people who choose not to love the kid. So they've made the choice to love that kid. They, and what they never say is, well, you know, imagine if a husband said to his wife, well, I know you're pregnant, I know it's our kid, but i tell you what, if it's a boy, yeah, I'll love him. And she'll say, we need to get counseling now. Right? Or if they know it's a boy, and he says, well, I mean, I can't really love anybody I've not even seen, so I, I need to wait till I see what it looks like. No one does that either. Right? We don't do that. So you make a decision and you stick with it. And then, of course, what happens, you make that decision, the kid is born, it's like you feel like your heart is just overflowing. People say, well, yeah, it's natural. Well, yeah, it's not natural for those who don't want anything to do with the kid. I've talked to guys who their girlfriend got pregnant and they want nothing to do with the kid, and they see the kid, their heart's not overflowing with love. At least most of them. It's like, well, all they see is that's a burden. It's going to cost me money. Or whatever. Right, so we have to stop this idea that well, it's just natural. It may seem natural, and I guess to a degree that would be natural for the individual who's living in line with how God has designed us to be. So in that sense, it would be natural, but it, it, but it begins with a decision. And it doesn't mean that you sat there one day and said, hmm, should I love the baby or not? It's not like you're thinking that, 
but you still made a decision. It may have been automatic or very quick, but you still decided to do that. And so that's, uh, that's the idea here uh, that we need to recognize is that we, just, we make this decision. I'm going to glorify God. He's poured his love in my heart. Whether I feel it or not, this doesn't matter. I'm going to love everyone, period. And we can do that. All right. So, continuing on, verse 16. I mean, sorry, verse 14. He says, My brothers, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, Paul is, he wants to encourage the believers because he's kind of been writing him pretty hard. Okay, but again, this is not a motivational speech where he's just making these statements about human beings in general. He is saying this about Christians. All right, this is just about Christians. All right, Paul did not have a theology that he believed everybody was good. Okay, that's not true. When people say, I just believe everyone is good. Okay, that's just not true. People say, I believe all human beings have goodness in them. Well, maybe. Kind of relative. It's kind of a relative thing. Okay, because what does the Bible say? Everybody is born in sin. Everybody is in rebellion to God. What we all know is, is that if we have children and you raise your children, you don't have to teach your children to do wrong. We teach them to do right. Whenever we correct our kids, no one ever says, no one ever smacks their kid's hand and says, you need to steal that. Don't ask permission. Who does that? Nobody does that, right? What we say is, no, 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 you don't take that. You have to ask. Whether it's ask mommy and daddy first or wherever the case happens to be. All right, so there's, we're, not, we're not good. Now, and now, it doesn't mean we can never do any good, but just remember that whenever we say there's no good in us, that means, relatively speaking, it doesn't mean that we, we can do relative good, but we can never do good that is so righteous that God owes us. God's never in heaven saying, wow, that person is so good. I owe them. This doesn't happen. All right, because we're not, we're, not, we're not wired that way. Sin has ruined everybody. So when he says there, then, that there is goodness in them, he's talking to believers. And he knows there's goodness in them because who lives in the believer? God, the Holy Spirit. God is filling their heart with love and peace and joy. And so they have, they have God in them. So he says he's convinced. They're full of goodness. They're filled with all knowledge. He doesn't say they know everything about everything, but they have, the, they have enough knowledge about God, they know what to do. So they're filled with knowledge. And they're able to instruct one another. So they know enough to be able to teach others at least a little bit about God. He says, nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of God's good news. So again, he's, just try, he's being positive. He says, I know you know these things. You can teach others. I'm just reminding you about certain points. That's why sometimes, you know, when you hear sermons, sometimes you can hear a whole slew of sermons and you, you may learn something every week. But there'll be other times when you hear sermons, you're not learning anything new, but you're being reminded of important things. It right? doesn't mean that when we say we forget, it, it rarely means that, wow, I forgot that, and you were living your life as if you never knew it. But, but what we mean by that is, yeah, that's bringing back to my mind the importance of that. Because there's a lot of important things to remember, tons of important things to remember. And so as we're living a life and trying to do our best as a Christian, sometimes we kind of, you know, lose track, so to speak, and we need to be reminded of certain things. Things we, we knew, but we need to be reminded. We need to be brought to the forefront again. And that's what Paul's doing when he says that he needed to emphasize to them certain points. 
Why is he doing so? Well, it's because of the grace given to him by God, because he's a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, and that was Paul's primary concern. In Paul's ministry, uh, we call him the Apostle of the Gentiles, because that was his main target audience. He was out trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Gentiles. He did share the gospel with Jewish people. In fact, in many cities, if there was a synagogue, he went there first. But he didn't dwell there. He presented the gospel, and then he started working with the Gentiles. Peter, on the other hand, he was primarily sent to the Jewish people. Didn't mean he never spoke to Gentiles uh, about uh, Christ, because he did. But he was, his primary target audience was, was the Jews. So Paul, again, is encouraging these Gentiles. And, uh, um, and they, again, that he is a minister to them. He is a priest uh, of God's good news. He says, my purpose is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. So all those things he's talking about there is he's basically saying he's bold to say what he's saying, He's, you know, Paul has performed some miracles. He's done some incredible things. But all that was done so the Gentiles would believe the gospel. That's what it was about. And that's what he was there for. And that's what he was explaining to them. And so he wanted to be a benefit to them. He wanted them to, to recognize it was God's power. It wasn't Paul. Uh, and that it was the power of God's spirit. So he says, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem all the way ar around to uh, Illyricrim. My aim is to evangelize where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. So he's not saying it's wrong to build on someone else's foundation, but here's Paul. So basically Paul, someone says, hey Paul, there's this, there's this city over here. Now we, we, got a, we got a church there. It's a brand new church. But man, they really need help. And then someone else says, hey Paul, now there's this town over here and they've never heard of Jesus. And Paul says, oh, that's where I'm going. He's not saying the other one's unimportant. That's where he's going. Okay? That is important. But this is, for him, that's what God called him to do. So that's, that's what he means by that. Wherever Christ wasn't named, that's where he's going. Uh, and he wants to tell him about Christ. And so that's, that's how he, uh, he lived his life. Started many, many churches uh, doing that. So again, he says, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem all the way down to Illyricum. My aim is to evangelize where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So then he says this. Now remember, he's writing to the church in Rome. So the church in Rome uh, is a church that he didn't start. He didn't start this church. Um, there are several different theories as to who started the church. Some think Peter started it. Some say, no, he didn't start it. But what it seems is there was a period of time when, the, when Jewish believers, when they were being persecuted by other Jews in Jerusalem. And sometimes they were being put to death. Sometimes they were being imprisoned. We know Paul did some of that because he talks about doing that when he was in the book of Acts before he became a believer. And so when that was going on, many of them, they were, they were also being disowned by their families. They were being disinherited by their families. Uh, other times people would no longer uh, basically use whatever business they had, they wouldn't call them up because, oh, they'd become a, 
they become a believer in the way, or they become a believer in Christ, and so they would reject them. And so they had no way to make a living to feed their family. So these people would leave, and they would begin to go to other cities. And some of them went to Rome. And believers do what believers always do. They, they go to Rome, they start looking for other believers, because they want to get together and read the Bible and pray and serve God, and that's what they did. So basically what it seems like is uh, because of the persecution, a handful, we don't know how, how big that was, but a handful of, of Jewish believers end up in Rome finding each other and they started this church. And so Paul is writing to them. So Paul, he had wanted to come and check them out for a while. You know, he wanted to come and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to find out about them and kind of encourage them and do some teaching. And so he kind of refers back to that here. And he says, that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. Uh, so what he means by this, he says, that's why. It's in other words, because I keep going to places I've never heard of Jesus. So I'm coming, but oh, I'm going to go here first. Okay, now I can go to Rome. Well, nope, I got to, you know, he's always going these other ways. He says, but now I no longer have any work to do in these provinces. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints for Macedonia and Achaia uh, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So a lot of the believers who were still in Jerusalem who were suffering all this persecution, they're having a huge financial hardship. Uh, as well as some other things that are going on uh, in the world during that time. And so these Christians in other places have gathered some money, and they've given it to Paul, and they want Paul to take it over to Jerusalem, uh, to the church there, so they can meet the needs of the saints. That's what he's talking about there. Uh, so a very practical thing uh, that he's doing. He says, yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs. So this is kind of a principle that is, is in the Bible, and that is this idea that if, if you benefit from someone spiritually, and then they end up having a need materially, you then are, in a sense, obligated to kind of help them out. Okay? So that's why, again, in most churches, uh, the reason why a pastor is paid is not because it's a corporation he set up so he can make a living. It's not how it works. Uh, the idea is, is he's supposed to spend his time ministering the word, ministering to other people spiritually, and he's supposed to do it to the point that he doesn't have time to get a regular job. He doesn't have time for that. And so then as the church is ministered then by him, then as they give money to help the church to, you know, we want to support missions and we want to do good works, we want to take care of the needs that people have, where the needs that people have in the church or elsewhere, etc. Then money is also used to help support the material needs of the pastor, what he needs. That's kind of, so there's kind of that obligation and accountability that's there. That's why it's set up that way. That's why it's always such a huge fiasco when you hear about pastors who then may be stealing money from the church on top of what they're going to be, or where those who set up ministries where it's all about them and they're collecting in millions and millions of dollars. You know, my thing is, is, if a, if a church decides they want to pay their pastor 200000 I don't care. They do what they want. But if he is using manipulation and underhanded ways to gain money, we got a problem. Right? It's not right. It's wrong. And, and uh, the world should mock Christians when that kind of thing happens. 
so, so there is to be this built-in uh, accountability um, uh, idea. You know, ministers should be working hard uh, for their people. And uh, so, that's, so that's what he's saying here. He's, he's kind of brought it out and says, so these Gentiles recognize that they have been blessed spiritually. They hear the gospel of Christ and they've become saved because salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew and that's where all this stuff came from. And, you know, it was whether it's because of the Jewish persecution and these Jewish people went out or it was because the apostles were sent out by Christ, you know, from Jerusalem to go to these places. There, there's been these blessings that have gone on in these places spiritually. Then they hear that basically the home base has got these problems. They just willingly give money because you need to go back and help those believers out because they have a need. And that's kind of the idea. So uh, most churches do that, just so you know. I, I, you may not know the inner workings of churches. is what churches should be doing. Uh, so I'll give you an example. So in our church, let's say that... Uh, um, churches have an obligation to help widows. Now, when it comes to widows, uh, the obligation of the church is, there's a, a, the wording that's used, at least in the King James, is they are to help the widows in need. So what that means is, is that if, if a lady's husband dies and her needs are to be met by her family, that's the command of God, her, her family is to meet those needs, especially if they're believers, because if they don't, God says, now you're worse than unbeliever if you don't do that, okay? But there are some widows who they don't have, either they don't have children, or they don't have family, or they may have children who aren't believers and are not taken care of. And if they go to church, that church got to take, the church has to look out for them. Uh, sometimes, uh, this is kind of the guidelines I use, sometimes I'm, I become aware of a widow who may have Christian children who do take care of her, but they have a limited means. And they may not be able to do everything. They're, they're trying to do their best, but, you know, there's things that happen. So, uh, an example, there was a lady once, she was uh, in, in this church, she was a widow. Uh, she lived in a, in a single wide. She had, enough, just barely, but had enough money to take care of her needs uh, each month. And, but we always kept tabs on her. And one day I went to go see her, and the, the uh, uh, living room was, was uh, a little warm. And I noticed she had this big fan that was to the side that was kind of facing the bedroom door. And I said, what, what, what is this for? She says, well, my air conditioner in the bedroom doesn't work. So I, I opened the bedroom door and turned this fan on to blow the cold air in there. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. All right. So, you know, I got it. No big deal. So um, uh, we finished. It was, I was visiting on a Tuesday morning that night. It just so happened to have a deacon's meeting. And so we had the deacon's meeting. I said, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, uh, her window unit uh, in her bedroom is out. Um, so I'm going to go buy one tomorrow, and I need some of you guys to go put it in. All right? Just there's a need. Take care of it. All right? She doesn't need to, she doesn't need to take it now. Then what I found out on top of that was because it sometimes doesn't happen with a trailer is because you have to run the window unit so much, which is very inefficient, it, it can run your bill way up. So she could afford her electric bill most times. She had an electric bill of 650 bucks. Mm. Right? Now, I do know this for a fact, because I've talked to other people in other churches, and something that happens is what a church will do is to say, oh, yeah, so-and-so has a need, and so they'll give them $25. Okay, if your electric bill is, is 650 bucks, you give them $25, 
The power company is still going to turn off your electricity if you don't pay your bill. That's all there's to it. But we have a responsibility. So I, you know, because I, I asked her, I said, that what? Because I figured out something, there may be more to this story. And I said, I said, can I see your electric bill? She said, well, I said, no, I said, I said, it's okay. I said, I know it's probably high, and I want to help you. And so she gave me the bill, I opened it up. It's even worse than I imagined. <laughs> it was 650 bucks. And I said, okay. And so I folded it up and put my pocket. I said, take care of it. She goes, well, how much? I said, I will take care of it. I said, it's just, and of course she was blown away. I said, no, that, that's our obligation. We have to do that. We're Christians and it's take care of it. And so I got back here and we took care of it. Okay, that's what church is supposed to do. Okay, some churches can do it more easy than others, depending on how they've handled their money. But the bottom line is that's what's supposed to happen. Okay, uh, that's how a church is going to function. So we are to meet, look out for each other that way, and we meet each other's spiritual needs. But sometimes there's physical needs we have to meet. And so sometimes we've helped people with food. Sometimes we help them with all kinds of ways. Now, just, ah, I'll tell you next week. We, got, we ran out of time. Sorry. Because uh, <laughs> there's a couple of the caveats that are really important with that, but uh, we'll just do that next week. So, well, I can't do it next week. I won't be here. Uh, so you have to remind me when I get back, and I'll finish that up so you can kind of understand. I'm going to my home, which happens to be Hawaii, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's pray, and uh, uh, we'll continue this in a couple weeks. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness. We thank you again, Lord, just for the, uh, all the information that Paul has given us. And, and again, Lord, as he continues to point back to you and all of the, the really the grace, the mercy that we have received from you, uh, Lord, it's, it's overwhelming, and, and we just want to thank you. And so we ask that, Lord, these things would, would have a, make an impression on our heart, and that, Lord, that we would think of these things and that we would recognize that not only do we receive the benefits of being in the family, but we're also part of the family that's to benefit others. And so we pray, Lord, you help us to think in that way. Father, we ask now that you would dismiss us with your blessing, that you watch over us and you keep us safe, and that, Father, you would continue to help us to grow in our knowledge of Christ and in the application of his truth. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.